Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of homicidal intent, drug use, and drug addiction. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The classic American dream is not without flaws. Like their pretty houses and manicured lawns, the nuclear families of the late 20th century maintained a front of prosperity and success. However, the underbelly of this lifestyle revealed a dark symptom of prevailing perfectionism. In basements and behind closed doors, mothers, fathers, and children alike face the fear of crumbling beneath the pressures of expectation. For a teenaged Kristen Rossum, this threat grew more and more vicious until it consumed her whole. When she fell from grace at only 15, she turned away from her dreams. Rather than struggle back to success, she relegated herself to a drug-induced haze. Even the veneer of a loving marriage and a successful career as a toxicologist couldn't fully conceal it. In fact, these hallmarks of success may have provided the final push as Kristen slowly turned into a cold-blooded killer. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Kristen Rossum, a toxicologist who took her job of studying dangerous and addictive drugs far beyond her laboratory. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Kristen Rossum, a toxicologist living in San Diego, California. In 2002, she was convicted of murdering her husband, Gregory de Villers. This week, we'll explore how a few bad breaks led Kristen to delinquency and her attempts to hide her addiction behind a marriage and career. Next week, we'll dive into Kristen's attempts to leave her marriage, which ultimately resulted in drug relapse and homicide. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. On a warm California day in the fall of 2000, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum entered the toxicology department at the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office. It was where she worked, and even though she'd struggled with substance abuse in the past, her co-workers seemed to trust her around the drugs they kept on the premises. 
As a toxicologist, she knew the ill effects of drugs and poisons better than anyone. Krista Rossum's work in the medical examiner's office required her to understand non-toxic and toxic concentrations of various substances as part of their investigations into crimes and deaths. Forensic toxicologists, which are toxicologists practicing in a medical legal specialty, perform tests on tissue samples and bodily fluids, which have been gathered from autopsies or crime scenes by forensic pathologists. These tests are highly precise and sophisticated and involve the use of chemical reagents, which are ingredients used to test for other substances in a solution. It's important for these professionals to be patient, detail-oriented, and efficient in gathering their results. They also need to be good communicators and proficient writers, as they're expected to articulate informed opinions in complicated cases, and sometimes are called to testify in court. From a legal perspective, toxicologists are relied upon to determine harmful doses of chemicals that may be prescribed for medical treatments or poisons that are used for more sinister reasons. They're also very helpful to medical professionals in assisting with autopsies and understanding where underlying health issues commingle with these chemical substances, which sometimes are difficult to explain. Whether Kristen felt called to forensics is unclear, but there was one thing she did feel a calling towards, drugs. Kristen had been stealing methamphetamine from the department for months this particular afternoon, however, it seems she had a different substance in mind. She looked around her to ensure she wasn't being watched. Then, according to the suspicions of authorities who later investigated the case, she reached for a specific manila envelope left on one of the lab's counters. Inside it, deadly fentanyl. And this time, Kristen wouldn't be the one using the stolen drug. Long before her life revolved around drugs and poisons, Kristen Rossum had a much brighter focus, dance. When Kristen's mother brought her to the Nutcracker Ballet in one of Chicago's prestigious theaters, young Kristen was mesmerized. The dainty costumes and elegant movements enchanted her. At that moment, in the early 1980s, Kristen knew she wanted to dance. But she had to wait patiently to find a studio. The timing was never right. The Rossum family had just moved from Memphis, Tennessee to Chicago after Kristen's father, Ralph, was offered a teaching position at Loyola University. Meanwhile, her mother, Constance, had a blooming career in advertising. Their family had secured their piece of the American dream, and it was growing brighter every day. As Kristen's family welcomed two more children, brothers Brent and Pierce, her father Ralph ascended in the world of academia. He published several scholarly books that focused on the Constitution and criminal justice and turned the heads of many prominent conservatives. Only a few years after publishing his first book, Ralph received word that the Reagan administration wanted him to join the Justice Department. There, he would be the deputy director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. So, in mid-1983, 
Ralph embraced this huge opportunity and moved his family to Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. The good news kept on rolling in for the family when Constance secured a job in their new town as a marketing manager for Marriott Host International. With their high-paying salaries, the successful parents enrolled their daughter at the prestigious Seven Locks Elementary. There, eight-year-old Kristen routinely got straight A's and demonstrated a particular interest in the sciences. She seemed to love learning, likely taking after her father. Her intense enthusiasm put her well ahead of her classmates. This enthusiasm and high energy found direction outside of academics as well. In DC, Kristen had her first opportunity to sign up for dance. Seven Locks had a partnership program with the American Ballet Company, which gave Kristen access to classes. She couldn't be more thrilled. From the start, Kristen was a natural. Her confidence in her inherent abilities only grew when Kristen scored a part in the ballet production of Romeo and Juliet at the Kennedy Center in the heart of the city. It was a dream come true. While a small role, it showed Kristen a taste of what she might have if she continued pursuing the art form. Unfortunately, Kristen's success in Maryland was short-lived. Her father continued to receive offers and opportunities from some of the biggest names in conservative law. People like Justice Antonin Scalia often came to the family's suburban house for dinner. Ralph's career only seemed to get bigger and brighter. In 1984, Ralph accepted a job at Claremont McKenna College, a prestigious liberal arts school that seemed to have fast-track to tenure. It was also on the opposite end of the country, in Southern California. For the third time in her eight years of life, Kristen packed up and prepared to move. Though the frequent moves were undoubtedly stressful on young Kristen, one constant helped her stay resilient – dance. After the move to Claremont in 1985, Kristen enrolled in twice-weekly ballet classes about 30 miles away in Anaheim. Her father Ralph shuttled her back and forth from her lessons. During these car rides, the two grew close. Aware of how much Kristen's youth he'd spent at work, Ralph cherished these moments to connect with his daughter. Kristen shared her father's fondness for their car rides. She appreciated his intellect and plied him with curious questions. The next two years flew by as the routine became a cherished staple. But by the time Kristen turned 13 in 1989, she'd confronted a difficult realization. She wasn't gifted the seemingly perfect pedigree that so many top performers appeared to possess. She wasn't very tall or naturally strong. Though disheartened, Kristen didn't give up. Instead, she pushed herself harder. By 14, Kristen was dedicating most of her waking hours to the craft with the ultimate goal of joining a dance company. Her hard work paid off 
when she was asked to play the Sugar Plum Fairy in a professional production of The Nutcracker. On opening night, her parents watched from the audience, ecstatic over their daughter's success. Kristen's own elation was quickly overshadowed by a rain cloud of news. Her father, Ralph, had accepted a year-long sabbatical in Virginia. So, in 1991, 14-year-old Kristen once again moved with her family. While the domestic shifts had become regular by this point, Kristen was now at the start of adolescence. She'd just finished her freshman year of high school. This time, starting over posed new and unforeseen obstacles. To cope with the latest move, Kristen devoted herself to dance. But a few months into her new East Coast life, Kristen's dance partner dropped her during a lift. The resulting fall caused Kristen to tear a ligament in her ankle. The injury hurt and Kristen was upset, but doctors assured her that once healed, she'd be able to return to the studio. However, during her first two months of recovery, Kristen felt restless. She convinced herself that if she didn't get practicing soon, she'd be unable to succeed in the competitive world. Against her doctor's advice, Kristen began training again. While not uncommon, ignoring a doctor's orders can definitely be risky. By not resting her torn ligament, Kristen opened herself up to worsening her injury and increasing her risk of permanent damage and provoking additional physical difficulties. When a torn ligament heals improperly, scar tissue develops around it, which can create a long-term limitation in motion and can also induce an early onset of a severe arthritis. Not nursing an injury like this also has the potential to lead to long-term pain, which can necessitate surgery or reliance on medication for a better quality of life. Ignoring ankle and foot trauma is potentially problematic because these are weight-bearing joints that allow us to stand and walk. Injuries here can lead to additional tears or fractures, including those resulting from a fall. It would have likely taken six to eight weeks of good care before Kristen could slowly work back into her dance routine. She should have listened to the doctor's advice at the time of her injury. Short-term annoyance for an athlete, or anyone really, is always better than long-term complications that could have been avoided. Initially, Kristen thought she knew better than her doctors. Her body felt fine enough. She took practices slowly and she performed her moves well at first. It's unclear when, but during another practice, Kristen fell again. This time, the injury was more severe. She writhed in pain on her way to the doctor, fearing the worst. Her terror compounded in the hours that followed when she learned she'd suffered a stress fracture in her foot, one that would turn into a chronic source of pain. A stress fracture is a small crack or bruising in the bone, and it's usually caused by repetitive and forceful physical activity. They can also happen when people change their exercise routines, like an increased intensity or adding a new movement into their program. An unhealed stress fracture would absolutely be an issue for a professional dancer, 
and could potentially create debilitating pain. It could also make specific movements more difficult or impossible to pull off. Without Kristen's medical record, it's hard to fully understand what happened to her. However, the result of her injury must have been devastating, Alistair. While Kristen was told she would be able to walk, run, and participate in nearly every other activity, her ballet career was likely over. The forced conclusion to all her hard work crushed Kristen. Her guiding light was stripped from her. Without it, she felt directionless. Dance had been her identity, and now she needed to reinvent herself. Up next, Kristen struggles to reconcile her lost dream. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Despite frequent moves throughout her childhood, Kristen Rossum had maintained her resilience through her love of dance. But in 1991, an injury forced her to set aside her dreams of dancing professionally. Now, 15-year-old Kristen needed a new way to stay busy, and her new friends in Virginia offered just the solution. In her sophomore year of high school, Kristen began drinking and smoking cigarettes. She also started smoking cannabis, but noted that she didn't get much out of it. Yet again, this new development in Kristen's life was interrupted by her father's career. Ralph's sabbatical came to an end in the summer of 1992, and the Rossums moved back to Claremont, California, this time into a larger home that emulated the American dream. The gleam of this upgrade did little for Kristen's dulled enthusiasm. At the start of her junior year, 15-year-old Kristen stopped hanging out with her old friends. They all felt that she'd changed, though they couldn't quite put their finger on how. Perhaps the greatest difference was what Kristen found fun. One cool California night in October 1992, 16-year-old Kristen stood among a group of rowdy new friends, Though her school was in the midst of a big football game that evening, Kristen was more intent on escaping reality. 
So, when one of her new buddies offered her a bump of crystal methamphetamine, she only briefly hesitated. Kristen inhaled the drug through her nostrils and let euphoria envelop her. She was a far cry from the shining perfectionist she'd once been. Though she didn't know it at the time, her downward spiral was far from over. Hard drugs can have a devastating effect on anyone. This is especially true of teenagers like Kristen, whose brains are still malleable and in development. By taking crystal meth, Kristen likely experienced immediate feelings of intense euphoria, an elevated sense of self, and a state of heightened energy and wakefulness. As we know by now, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that governs the brain's pleasure centers, while norepinephrine excites the sympathetic nervous system, causing an increase in heart rate and blood pressure. On top of the intense emotional high, this flood of neurotransmitters can also cause powerful psychoactive effects, like hallucinations, severe anxiety, and aggression. The harmful effects of crystal meth are now well recognized, potentially leading to permanent health issues like high blood pressure, damage to internal organs like the lungs, kidneys, and liver, scarring from skin lesions, and dental problems involving severe tooth decay and gum disease, colloquially known as meth mouth. It can also induce lasting neurological and psychological issues like structural and functional changes in the brain, problems with mood regulation, deficits in motor skills and cognition, memory loss, and psychotic symptoms like paranoia or delusional thinking. Although the developing brain is more vulnerable to crystal meth, it's highly addictive regardless of age. Kristen's experiment wasn't that unique, and the following relationship that formed between her and the drug was unfortunately all too familiar. After taking her first bump, Kristen was hooked. She quickly succumbed to addiction, to the shock of her old friends. Kristen denied she had a problem, then slowly walled them off. After her friends dropped away, Kristen's grades followed. Her straight A's turned to B's, and her loved ones noticed she always looked tired. Her parents may have assumed that the dip in performance was the result of mild depression or other symptoms of her typical high school experience. They certainly didn't realize a need to intervene. Unchecked, Kristen spiraled out of control. Her appearance changed, she lost weight and developed sores on her face. Within a few months, she used meth constantly, just to get through the day. Her parents remained oblivious. They even left her in charge of the house when they took a trip to celebrate their 21st wedding anniversary. That week, she threw a raging party. After the wild night, her two younger brothers took things into their own hands. While Kristen was out, they dug through her room and found her drug paraphernalia, including a mirror, razor blade, and glass pipe. Scared, they turned it over to their parents. Kristen's parents tried to address it, but Kristen didn't want to admit her drug addiction. She tried to leave the house, only to get into a physical altercation that resulted in a visit from the police and a social worker a few days later. While nothing came of the fight, it was a low point for the otherwise picture-perfect family.
Kristen's parents quickly found a counselor and enrolled her in a 12-step program. But no matter how hard she tried, Kristen just couldn't kick her drug addiction. Addiction recovery is an arduous process, but people who fully commit to a 12-step program can benefit immensely. And I've seen this time and time again in my own practice. The history of the 12-step program goes back to 1935, when Bill Wilson, along with Dr. Robert Smith, founded Alcoholics Anonymous in Ohio. A little over 10 years later, they formally created and implemented the 12 stepping stones deemed necessary for overcoming alcoholism. To give an oversimplified breakdown, the 12 steps involve admitting one's addiction is out of control, submitting to a higher power, reliving past mistakes with other members, making amends for those mistakes, and learning to change these daily behaviors. There's also an emphasis on helping others who suffer from the same addictions, which can be a very empowering personal motivation for staying on track with a life of sobriety. Although AA was initially developed for adults, 12-step programs can also be effective for teenagers like Kristen. The key here, though, is fully committing to the work, which isn't always easy. Many people avoid 12-step intervention, one obstacle being the spirituality component and turning themselves over to a higher power. Additionally, anonymity can't always be guaranteed. Recovery rarely follows a straight path, and each patient needs a tailored strategy. Recovery certainly didn't come easy for Kristen Rossum. That summer, away from the influence of her friends, Kristen was apparently able to avoid using any drugs. Her family felt that she'd rounded a corner and now could get her life back on track. Unfortunately, when the school year started, Kristen found herself surrounded by her same friends and the temptation to escape. Shortly into her senior year, Kristen began using methamphetamine again. This time, her parents were more attuned to the signs. When her grades started slipping and her appearances started to change, they knew something was wrong. One afternoon in January 1994, Constance observed 17-year-old Kristen arriving home in an agitated state. She accused her daughter of using drugs again, and after a heated back and forth, she found a glass pipe in Kristen's bra. At her wit's end, Constance called the police, who arrived a short time later. When they were invited into the Rossum's home, the officer immediately noticed Kristen's altered state, and Constance handed over the pipe she'd found, as well as a packet of methamphetamine. Because Kristen had no prior history of possession, she went through police booking and only stayed in custody for a short time that night before being released back to her parents. However, before returning home, Kristen told the officers about her group of friends and, crucially, gave out their names. It doesn't appear that Kristen faced any charges, but the fury she received at school more than made up for it. Her group of friends disintegrated. Some threatened her. Sensing an increasingly dangerous situation, the Rossums pulled Kristen out of school at the end of her first semester senior year. Despite her addiction, she'd obtained enough credits to graduate early. 
Ralph quickly found a teaching job at the University of Redlands not too far from Claremont. Soon after, Kristen gained admission. To keep close tabs on Kristen, Ralph drove her to campus, and she attended her classes while he taught. During these drives, the two grew closer again, and Ralph felt like his daughter was returning to his life. Once again, Kristen seemed to pull herself together, but at 17, things were far from settled. It didn't take long for Kristen to find meth at the University of Redlands. This time, she kept her addiction hidden from her parents. In that first spring semester, she did well enough. By fall, she had built up enough goodwill with her parents for them to agree to let her move into student housing. This gave Kristen a freedom she wasn't equipped to handle. Away from the watchful eye of her family and surrounded by those willing to enable, she spiraled again. Her drug use drastically increased, and at the end of the semester, during a routine dorm check, the staff discovered meth in her room. The administration promptly expelled Kristen. Rather than tell her family, Kristen grabbed her things and took off. When Constance went to pick up Kristen from the University of Redlands for winter break, her daughter had vanished. Kristen's dorm room sat empty. While looking around for clues, the landline in the room rang. On the other end, Constance heard the voice of Kristen's dealer. Constance felt heartbroken, angry, and concerned. After everything they'd done for their daughter, she'd let them down again, and now she could be anywhere. Naturally, Constance's mind raced to the worst possible scenarios. For all she knew, Kristen could be dead in a drug den. With no contact from Kristen, Constance filed a missing persons report. However, the police were nearly powerless. Kristen had turned 18 that October. If she didn't want to be found, she had that right. Even though her family knew this, it didn't lessen their devastation. Throughout December 1994, the family worried they'd receive a late-night phone call from the authorities informing them that Kristen had died. Their fears were natural, and Kristen had no intention of bringing them any peace of mind. She knew she'd disappointed and failed her parents and couldn't bear the thought of calling home. So, she turned to friends. After spending a couple weeks couch surfing, getting high and getting by, Kristen felt exhausted. She'd burned through much of the goodwill she'd built up with her college friends and the majority of her remaining money. Looking to get out of town, she boarded an Amtrak train and headed south. When she arrived in San Diego later that day, she immediately looked for a place to stay. The bright, sunny sky shined down in stark contrast to her situation. After looking around, Kristen found a cheap motel in the city of Chula Vista, about 10 miles from the Mexican border. The situation wasn't ideal, but it got her off the streets and away from any immediate harm. 
Late one afternoon, in the end of December of 1994, 18-year-old Kristen put on her jacket, grabbed her bag, and left her room. She was headed for the border. It's unclear what exactly she wanted to find. However, at the time, people suffering from addiction often crossed the footbridge into Mexico looking to score. So it's likely methamphetamine was on Kristen's mind that cool afternoon as she started the short journey across the bridge. At the crossing, Kristen dropped her jacket. As she reached down to grab it, she collided with 21-year-old Gregory de Villers. Looking at him, her life changed forever. It was like a moment from a movie. But while Gregory might have called it romance, he'd actually stumbled into a horror story. Up next, Kristen finds a beacon of hope. Now, back to the story. When 18-year-old Kristen Rossum met 21-year-old Greg de Villas on the bridge into Tijuana, the attraction was instant. Their first conversations made it clear that they had an unshakable connection. At their first meeting, Greg noticed nothing odd about Kristen. His eyes were caught by her beauty, and Kristen always hid her intentions well. After years of living with addiction, she knew how to keep that part of her life a secret. The evening after they met, Greg and Kristen went bar hopping in Tijuana, where they continued to hit it off and even took their attraction to the dance floor. Later that night, when they made their way back across the border into San Diego, Kristen said she had a hotel room in Chula Vista. Wanting to protect her, Greg insisted Kristen come back to his apartment. He was a student at UC San Diego working on his biology degree, and he had a place nearby. It wasn't hard for Kristen to agree. She was attracted to Greg, and his offer to spend the night was enticing. Over the next several days, Greg's two college roommates quickly noticed his fast infatuation with Kristen. And even though Kristen was likely using meth, Greg didn't notice any hints of agitation or jumpiness. Naturally, Kristen didn't mention her history of meth use. So, the two lovers only deepened their romance. It was convenient for Kristen, who never stayed at her hotel. Instead, she explained to Greg that she had just moved to the area and wanted to get on her feet. Greg sympathized. One week after meeting her, Greg asked Kristen to officially move in with him. While his roommates hesitated to allow it, they eventually relented. But they seemed to notice worrying signs in Greg's new girl. To them, it seemed that Kristen had two personalities. Sometimes she appeared bubbly and outgoing, others she seemed anxious and easily angry. They brought their concerns to Greg, who brushed them off. Finally, the truth came out. After a few weeks of living together, Greg discovered a meth pipe in Kristen's jacket. When Greg confronted her in confusion, Kristen broke down and claimed that she was working on quitting her use of the drug. 
Greg felt hurt, but his big heart made him want to support her in her journey to sobriety. Over the next couple of weeks, Kristen seemed to pursue just that. She acquired three part-time jobs and finally reached out to her parents in January 1995. Her family seemed relieved just to hear her voice. But that resolution didn't keep Kristen from relapsing. She began stealing Greg and his roommate's belongings and selling the items for drug money. When Greg confronted her, she apologized and he once again forgave her. More than that, he offered to get her a part-time job at the law office he worked at part-time while in school. He figured it would be a good way to keep tabs on her and ensure her recovery. Delighted, Kristen accepted the offer and, once again, worked at sobriety. In April 1995, 18-year-old Kristen applied to attend San Diego State University part-time. Once accepted, she eventually settled on a chemistry major. That June, Greg proposed. It was a bold move, but the two had only deepened their bonds that spring, and Kristen initially accepted. Later, the couple decided to hold off on making such a rash decision. As a different step toward marriage, they moved into a small, one-bedroom apartment together. Over the next couple of years, things steadily improved for the couple. Despite the odds, they stayed together, excelled in their respective educations, and Kristen stayed sober. In October of 1996, for Kristen's 20th birthday, the couple took a weekend trip where Greg proposed again. This time, Kristen followed through on the engagement. She was at a high point. Her romantic life had flourished and her academic life felt gratifying. Kristen genuinely reclaimed her love of science and in June 1997, she put her passion to the test. Kristen applied for a student internship in the toxicology department at the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office. She was hired and quickly impressed her co-workers with her knowledge and eagerness to succeed. The county's medical examiner's office operates to investigate criminal cases or aid in death investigations. As a lab tech in this setting, Kristen likely had myriad responsibilities. Aside from the obvious, performing tests on bodily fluids and tissue samples retrieved from crime scenes, forensic lab technicians are qualified to perform many different tasks. These can include keeping technical records, assembling and compiling data into reports, the maintenance of laboratory equipment, preparing chemical reagents, and disposing of hazardous waste products. She was probably logging and storing evidence from crime scenes as well, like illicit drugs, for example. If so, Kristen would have encountered hard narcotics like cocaine, heroin, PCP, and crystal meth. However, despite her past troubles with addiction, working in the toxicology department seemed like a great fit given her background in chemistry. With a renewed focus on school and a hopeful career in toxicology, Kristen fostered a growing sense of independence, one that Greg seemed to dilute. She felt he was needy. As Kristen tried to expand her horizons, it seemed Greg was far too attached 
to their status quo. Though this created some friction, the two were always able to work it out. Still, Kristen couldn't help but notice her feelings for Greg cooling. She yearned for something more exciting. In the winter of 1998, 21-year-old Kristen began an affair with a co-worker. They often emailed throughout the day and met whenever they could to hook up. Kristen may have enjoyed the agency she felt in this relationship, rather than being seen as recovering from addiction, the way Greg saw her, she was able to be the successful scientist she truly felt she was. As the spring of 1999 passed, however, Greg didn't seem to notice Kristen's increasing distance. He'd been too focused on his career. After graduating in the summer of 1997, he'd found a job at a biotech firm. Unnoticed, Kristen's affair continued, even after her paramour moved to New York. Just 22 years old, Kristen confided her trepidations to her mother about her upcoming marriage, who only assured her that cold feet were normal. So, Kristen followed through on her wedding to Greg. The guests in attendance had no idea of the behind-the-scenes turmoil Kristen had grappled with. For them, the wedding seemed out of a fairy tale. The couple had their ceremony at Mount Baldy, not too far from Claremont McKenna College. The air was clear and the views were spectacular. After dating for four and a half years, the couple was finally hitched. It was a day for celebration. Sadly, even this renewed commitment to Greg didn't stop Kristen's affair. Shortly after the wedding, Kristen emailed her former co-worker in New York to express her love for him. But those feelings soon waned. Her restlessness kept her dissatisfied, and she always seemed to look for the next dopamine rush. Soon enough, she found a new focus. In March of 2000, shortly after completing her coursework at San Diego State University, 23-year-old Kristen started working at the medical examiner's office full-time as a toxicologist. Shortly after, Michael Robertson came aboard as chief toxicologist. Hailing from Australia, the 30-year-old came with plenty of acclaim in the toxicology field. Robertson and Kristen hit it off. Within a few weeks, flirtatious emails, sideways glances, and the occasional gift blossomed into a romantic entanglement. Both were married, but their chemistry was undeniable. Robertson seemed completely taken with Kristen's looks and may have found excitement in the secrecy of their relationship. Kristen likely enjoyed this aspect too, but more than that, she liked that Robertson was a commanding intellectual. For all she knew, he could very well help her advance in her career. As the affair continued, Kristen became more brazen. She made no attempt to be conspicuous in front of co-workers, flirting with Michael during shifts. Sometimes, the two even took extended lunches together. All the while, 
Greg remained in the dark. That was until Kristen relapsed. It's unclear exactly when, but not long after beginning the affair with Michael Robertson, Kristen started using methamphetamine again. This time, she used her resources at work to aid her addiction. As stated earlier, Alistair, a medical examiner's office is often full of dangerous substances, including hard drugs. It's also the lab technician's job to log and store these drugs, which could potentially be very difficult if that person was actively struggling with addiction. In reality, the maintenance of someone's sobriety rests entirely within that individual. If someone is committed, has formed new and healthy coping skills, and has their mental health in order, the task is much less demanding. On the other hand, someone walking the tightrope between using and abstinence may not fare so well. It could be that the temptation would overpower their better judgment. Recovery is a fragile time in an addict's life, and the unique environment Kristen found herself in was certainly a testing ground for her willpower. The poorly regulated medical examiner's office proved an open playground for Kristen. Some of her jobs centered on logging drugs found at crime scenes. This meant she handled addictive substances regularly. Once drugs were logged, they were placed into a manila envelope before being dropped in a lockbox. However, it wasn't always routinely emptied. This meant someone could slip their hand through the slot to grab an envelope of drugs and pull it back out. Additionally, it wasn't uncommon for envelopes to be left on co-workers' desks unattended when a case was still open. While it's unclear how often she stole, Kristen certainly took what she wanted without co-workers catching on. She was also able to smoke without getting caught, taking advantage of special rooms in the facility that had been built with advanced ventilation. As Kristen's recklessness increased, so too did the suspicions of her co-workers. But not about any drug use, office gossip centered on Kristen and Michael Robertson's affair. It seems like a well-known secret, but when their boss called them separately into his office to discuss the matter, the pair denied their involvement with one another. Unable to find any concrete proof of their relationship, he sent them away with a warning. Meanwhile, Greg had begun having his own suspicions about Kristen and Robertson. His worst fear was confirmed when he found a love letter among Kristen's belongings. He erupted in a billow of hurt and confusion before calling Michael Robertson and telling him not to make any further advances toward his wife. The blow was deep for Greg, whose dad had abandoned his family and run off to Europe when he was young. The childhood trauma likely colored Greg's desperation towards Kristen. He didn't want his wife to disappear into some other life the way his father had. Committed to the marriage, Greg urged Kristen to accompany him in couples counseling. Kristen did little to assuage his worries. That summer, she started looking for a place to live without Greg. 
She also told him that she wanted to attend a work conference, conveniently leaving out that Michael Robertson would also attend. Calling Kristen's bluff, Greg pressed her interest in the event, and she responded by gaslighting Greg's concerns. Greg relented in defeat. He couldn't stop his wife, so instead, he plunged headfirst into his work, hoping some career success might keep Kristen around. In September 2000, Kristen went to the conference with Robertson, where they spent nearly all of their time together. She seemed to grow more enamored with him every day, so she wasn't too happy returning home to her marriage. She and Greg got into another argument, which erupted when Greg found at least three pills in her purse and accused her of using drugs once again. Kristen denied it and deflected. She claimed they were for minor health ailments, including cramps. Without evidence to the contrary, Greg gave up the claim. But he didn't lose his suspicions. In turn, Kristen continued pulling away from their relationship, using more frequently and investing her attention in Robertson. On November 2nd, 2000, Greg returned home early to find Kristen on their couch reading another love letter from Robertson. It began a verbal spa. In a last-ditch effort to save their marriage, Greg threatened to tell Kristen's boss about her romance with Robertson and her drug use. The prospect sent Kristen over the edge. After struggling for most of her young adult life to achieve any semblance of stability, 24-year-old Kristen finally had something close to a life she wanted. Now, she felt Greg had threatened to take that all away. That may have been the moment Kristen's lethal intent was born. Next time on Medical Murders, Kristen Rossum uses her position as a toxicologist to flee her failing marriage through homicide. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Kristen Rossum, among the many sources we used, we found Deadly American Beauty, Beautiful Bride, Dark Secrets, Deadly Love by John Glatt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast shows like Medical Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Medical Murders